Hello, everybody, and welcome to our penultimate session for the Society of Evidence-Based Policing on 10 challenges facing policing from an evidence-based point of view. Really pleased to have Simon Harding with us here today, and I'll talk a bit about him in a minute. Next week is our last session. Uh, that's going to be on data science and the implications for all of us. We've got uh, uh, a guy called Andreas from here in the Met um, talking about um, how important it is and uh, how data science helps us understand policing better. Uh, I'm speaking from Sutton in the south of London at the moment, near to Croydon. Uh, gangs are a significant issue here and elsewhere. I'm currently the lead for violence in London and it's of acute interest to me, particularly from an applied perspective of what we can do to stop more people, particularly young people, getting hurt. Uh, it's therefore a real pleasure for me to introduce Simon Harding, uh, who's from the University of West of England. Um, Simon has had a long and distinguished career in studying gangs. I mean, if you look at him and you look at me, we're not the type of guys uh, who understand gangs well, but Simon does. Um, here in the Society of Evidence-Based Policing, we've been unequivocally sort of quantitative when you're looking at what works. But when you're looking at why stuff works uh, and trying to understand the mechanisms behind what's happening, sometimes looking at hard data doesn't help. And Simon has spent a long time doing what we call ethnographic research, so living with gangs, interviewing them, understanding them. So don't judge someone by their appearances, uh, judge them by uh, his knowledge and insight. And I've asked him specifically to speak about lessons for policymakers and practitioners like us in the policing, in police and crime commissioners offices or in policy departments like the Home Office. Um, please, if you've got any questions, uh, put them in the chat bar and ask us afterwards. Uh, if you start with a queue, then that's great. I'll moderate that uh, afterwards. Um, and without uh, any more pausing or hesitating, Simon, it is really nice to have you come and speak to us. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, we have, folks, 10 years worth of insight crunched into 40 slides. Uh, and so hopefully it will be really interesting. Simon, over to you. Very good. Thank you very much. And good afternoon, everybody. I shall uh, share my screen uh, just now. Um, just while I'm doing that, though, uh, Alex, it's University of West London based in Ealing rather than University of West of England, which I believe is in uh, Bristol. But uh, yeah, University of West London. Uh, let me just share my screen. Hopefully uh, people can see that. I will just uh, hit slideshow and commence from the beginning. Um, very good. Okay, so um, yes, yeah, so, so I'm an ethnographic um, uh, researcher. I uh, specialize in qualitative research. So that really means uh, getting very close to the front line, interviewing people, um, for two or three hours sometimes at a stretch and repeated interviews with people, visiting the, in them in their locations and getting to know who they are and why they do what they do. So in this particular presentation, what I hope to do is stitch together for you a number of issues which have been probably uh, front of your mind for some time. Uh, who's involved? Why are they doing this? Why is there a, a, an upsurge and a rise in youth violence and serious youth violence when other crimes are declining? Uh, why is this all taking shape in the way that we're seeing it present and play out on our streets? So I'm going to try and stitch all of that together and give you an overarching narrative which uh, I hope will be a convincing explanation for a lot of what we're seeing. I want to start with this image here. Um, this is uh, Stormzy, of course, presenting at the Brit Awards and performing back in 2009. And this image caused an absolute sensation. It was front page news. And of course, the reason it's a sensation is because he has had Banksy design a, a stab vest, um, which he's wearing here. And you can see and in terms of zeitgeist and, uh, you know, Internet memes, this presents an image 
delivers a message about Britain in 2019. And uh, it's a curious one because it obviously links to uh, violence and the expectation of uh, some young people that uh, a stab vest is... is um, uh, required uh, dress attire. So I found it a fascinating image. The reason I think uh, we are seeing the issues that we're seeing is because of three things. It's a confluence of three key changes that are taking place in society here in the UK at the moment. The first of those is gang evolution. The second is uh, evolution and expansion of drug markets. And the third is the impact of IT and social media and how all these three things converge and uh, come together. And I'm going to talk about each of those in turn. So let me start with gang evolution. So what do I mean by that? Well, essentially over the past few years, street gangs as we, we know them and as they present today have really become much more attractive to young people. Their rules and their logic and their reason for being have widened out. And what I mean by that is essentially with age ranges. So the age ranges of people who are involved in gangs have now extended. If you think back five or 10 years ago, we might've been talking about people aged 16, 17 to ages 20, 21, that being the core group. That's now widened considerably and it's stretched down to the younger age groups, people aged 12, 11, or even 10 obviously performing slightly minor roles. But at the other end, it's extended from age 21 all the way up to 25 or even age 30. And we now have the street gang kind of uh, blending in almost with organized crime groups, which are the, the next tier up. So if we have an extended age range from 10 to 25 or even 30 years, we simply have more people in the gang. And we also have more people becoming more embedded in the gang. The gang has become something that's very adhesive for young people. It's no longer a rite of passage where you can join it and then leave it a few years later when uh, you have a, a, a start, when you're starting a family or maybe taking on a job or whatever. Those kind of um, uh, routes and opportunities have changed. So joining a gang now becomes something that is much more adhesive. So as well as going wider, the gang has also gone deeper. And there are people now involved in the gang who will probably uh, be very deeply embedded in it. And they show that in, in their presentation, in how they speak, how they talk, maybe even how they walk, uh, but also in what they do and how they do it and what they are prepared to do. If you have more people in this environment, this social domain, Quite simply, you've got more social competition. That means it's going to be harder for you to raise your game and go from zero to hero in a short space of time. And that's what many of these young men are trying to do. They're using the gang as a, as a mechanism for building their status and their reputation, which will bring them power and eventually money. So with that objective, they have to place and position themselves within a gang hierarchy. And in order to do that, they have to engage in certain criminal activities that will boost their reputation. However, the more people you have, the more difficult it is. And I'll be talking a lot as I go through the presentation about uh, uh, social competition and how that affects the uh, current levels of violence that we're seeing. I also talk and have theorized a great deal about what I call street capital. Street capital for me is the internal currency that drives street gangs. It's a kind of inverted social capital. So for those of us who are uh, professionally engaged, we might uh, engage in cultural capital, social capital, even joining an event like this where you're networking, engaging. That's a form of social capital. Those kind of events and issues are pretty meaningless to people who are gang affected or gang involved. For them, what's important is street capital, and street capital is inverted. So it's things like um, building a reputation and, and uh, gaining status by knowing how to hold and wield a knife, knowing how to strike somebody in their body that will cause damage or minimum damage, knowing how to exit an estate when it's being raided by the police, knowing how to deal drugs, exchange and sell stolen goods, or even just roll a joint in a high wind with one hand. 
those kind of things will bring you street capital. And your street capital can elevate or deflate depending on how vulnerable you are. So if you are disrespected or demeaned by your peer group, your street capital will fall. If you are um, represented or boosted in your popularity or status, your street capital will rise and expand exponentially. So this imperative to maintain street capital is now what's driving a lot of the violence and it's driving ultra violence. I'll talk more about that in a minute. We're also seeing gang evolution altering social norms. The introduction of throwing acid, for example, something that we haven't seen since perhaps the 19th century in this country. And then, of course, the removal of people from the streets and their incarceration in prison is no longer an inhibiting factor to their uh, street gang activity. Through stolen phones or blue phones, as I'm told, they can be uh, used to continue illegal activities from prison. So in many ways, incarceration just means business as usual with the opportunity to make wider contacts. And of course, for young people, gaining respect reduces their vulnerability. It is the street gang which offers this route to respect. If we go back to the 1960s and 70s, that route to respect was probably gained by getting an apprenticeship or a job or holding down one or one or other of those. Well, not anymore. Now, the advancement is seen to be through street capital and you have to earn that actively. For me, as a theorist, uh, a street gang is really what I would call a, a social domain a dangerous arena of social conflict and competition. For them, they might call it a fam, uh, a mandam, a, a, a peer group, whatever. But for me, it's a dangerous arena of social conflict and competition. They claim to be a happy band of brothers. They claim to have each other's back. But in actual fact, trust is a, a very um, limited commodity and it can be gained and lost almost immediately. A street gang is regenerative, it's dynamic and it's evolving. And the football analogy I would use here is the gang is constantly changing, but the game stays the same. So the players may change, but the gang and their aim and their intent and their objective is the same. So here's what I would describe the gang as. The gang is really a, a blend, a mixture of Grand Theft Auto, Fortnite, for those of you who've got 14-year-old kids, a lot of The Purge, a great deal of The Hunger Games, a lot of Love Island, a bit of The X Factor, a bit of Call of Duty, and the principles of The Apprentice, all mashed up, rolled together, playing out 24-7 in the hot house environment of the Big Brother house. Now, just think of the pressure that is brought to bear on young people by this kind of scenario. And this is what young people are feeling and pressured by every single minute of the day if they're gang afflicted or gang affected or gang involved. It's this kind of pressure. So what do young people do to manage this kind of pressure? They self-medicate with super strength skunk. They uh, take slights and bits of disrespect, uh, hugely emotionally uh, impacting upon them. And of course, they strike out with violence. And of course, all the time they have to maintain their level of street capital and not allow that to deflate in any way. If it deflates, they become vulnerable and then they will be victimized and other people will want a bit of them. And then of course you add into that guns, knives, drugs and then for good measure you wrap the whole thing up and you post it on social media 24 7 so everybody else can comment on it and throw their opinion in and this of course creates all kinds of problems the, the like of which we see play out on the streets so overall it's a more competitive world imagine for example you maybe a police officer you're about to go for your inspectors and you've got a really good opportunity for climbing up to the next rank in the hierarchy. And then all of a sudden you merge with another force and you have another 200 people in your, in your division. Uh, how are you then going to rise above the pack to get your inspectors or your uh, superintendent um, escalation? 
it's going to be very difficult because there are more people pushing and jostling for the same thing. Well, that's what we're seeing now with the gang. There is as much violence within the gang as there is between gangs. So this jostling, this competitive conflict environment is absolutely key to our understanding of what happens. And then, of course, ultraviolence. Ultraviolence will bring you the competitive advantage that you need to go from zero to hero. So ditch the knife, put some acid into a sports bottle, and then use that because you can throw acid from two or three meters. And when you do throw acid, the person who's holding a knife opposite you will drop their knife and cover their face and they will then run. And they are then effectively prone to whatever you wish to do. So you have them at an advantage. And that is a competitive advantage, which will win you plaudits, it will win you respect, it will win you what's called street ranking. So all of those things are now absolutely vital for young people who are gang affected. And they talk about this all the time, every minute of the day, and they will boost each other's reputation online. We've, we know, and of course, this is now something that's not just um, limited to London, uh, issues of territoriality and postcode beefs. S maybe started in London and Birmingham, but very quickly it's expanded. Other areas of the country, uh, places like uh, Bolton, Preston, uh, Coventry, uh, all Wolverhampton, all now experiencing issues of postcode beefs. These are uh, young street gang members who are defending their territoriality. However, if you're also involved in drug dealing, you very quickly learn as you move from being a younger to an older gang member that postcode beefs are not good for business. People do not want to come into your estate or your postcode or ward to buy drugs if there is going to be the possibility of violence. So this has had a dramatic impact on the drugs market. What we know about the drugs market is that it has altered and changed significantly. Drug supply in terms of um, uh, heroin will come from Afghanistan and uh, maybe Iraq or Pakistan, and it will come over into the UK, uh, usually via Turkey. In terms of cocaine, uh, powdered cocaine, for example, will come from Peru, Colombia and Bolivia up through the Caribbean and over into the UK that way. That's the traditional route. This too has changed and it's changed largely because we have uh, new arrivals and new migrant families in the United Kingdom from West Africa, be that Senegal, Ghana or um, uh, Nigeria. We also have uh, new migrant families from Somalia and other parts of uh, East Africa. So with these families now arriving in the UK, there are new markets and new routes of supply and international supply. So this again makes the uh, drug market more crowded with more competition. And that too has led to an evolution of drug markets here in the UK. So, what you have to do now, if you want to make a profit from your estate, is you have to get your drugs to the consumer as quickly as you can. And I call this the 24-hour dial-a-dealer effect. So you need to get your drugs to your end user, preferably skipping out the middleman. And you have to do this by putting your boys on either BMX bikes or mopeds and having the drugs delivered through their front door. And this, with the conjunction of iPhones, has allowed people to dial their dealer and get their drugs delivered immediately to their home. Now, this is interesting because this means you can begin to, to deal drugs and make a profit beyond your own local estate and be beyond your own local territory or ward or borough here in London, for example. So you can now deal five or 10 miles away if you can get your boys on mopeds or bikes and they can deal to this extended wide area. Now in places that has caused conflict, but here you see an image of a young man dealing drugs on a moped. He will have a cache of drugs on him. He will also have a screwdriver, a weapon or a knife for his own protection and a bundle of money because these young men also become targets. 
And in London, we've seen a number of young men uh, be fatally injured because they've been targeted by rival groups um, to try and obtain their, their money or their cash of drugs. Here in London, some of the young men involved have uh, really enjoyed the, the moped element of this, the bike life, as they call it, and they become less interested in drugs and more interested in stealing the bikes and then stealing and acquiring uh, other people's laptops, iPhones, etc. So that's caused a significant problem in London over the past two or three years, something the Metropolitan Police have now got on top of. But I've spent my time interviewing some of these young boys who uh, ride around on mopeds and uh, I have to tell you, before they uh, believed me that I was a researcher because they thought I was a fed, uh, and before they gave me an interview, they forced me to sit on the back of their moped while they drove around. Uh, and as they drove around, they were pointing out which bikes they would steal and how easy they were to steal. And, uh, you know, it was a fascinating um, experience for me, although not one I would really repeat very quickly. So not only are these people at risk of targeted attack, they can deal well beyond their postcode. And this has helped evolve drug markets. And of course, this then commences the emergence of county lines. And this really began to emerge, I would say, several years ago. Uh, we now have saturated markets in the key metropolitan areas of Britain. So Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham and London uh, are highly saturated markets. So for a street gang to make a profit, they now have to move outside their boundary area to fresh areas where the markets are not saturated. And on the map on the right, you can see the red dots where the county lines start. And again, it's the metropolitan areas. And you can see the blue dots where the county lines end up, the host towns. Each of those host towns has its own local domestic market, usually for heroin. But of course, it's in the interest of the dealers to widen that market. And they do so by um, pushing crack cocaine onto the heroin users. So the heroin users now use uh, heroin to come to um, come down and then they will use uh, crack cocaine to come back up. So it's a double market immediately for any dealer. So that has driven huge levels of profit. And I've interviewed uh, boys who are making a thousand pounds a day uh, selling and uh, drugs via county lines. And of course, they manage a number of people that they exploit uh, very severely. Uh, over uh, the COVID lockdown, again, there's been some success through the NCA and local policing forces to reduce the level of county lines. But now that lockdown is easing, we're seeing immediately they are coming back up. And there's been a big shakeup in terms of who owns the lines and who's running the lines. So we're about to see uh, a reckoning with some of that in terms of violence. And of course, here in London, where are the people living that are linked and based to county lines? Well, they're in the darker shaded areas. And if I was to overlay this map with a map of urban deprivation and poverty, it would be the same areas. If I was to overlay this map with gang affected areas, it would be the same areas. And of course, here in London, we're seeing what we call the donut effect, where gangs are moving out of the traditional inner city parts of London to more suburban areas and outlying boroughs. And in the south, you can see the uh, dark shaded area there is Croydon, uh, which has some very uh, specific and prolific um, issues to do with uh, street gangs and uh, homicide at the moment. And of course, where do the county lines end up? Well, largely in depressed seaside towns, but it can be market towns, it can be university towns, uh, it can be a variety of different places. Seaside towns have a very um, uh, identifiable uh, local domestic heroin market. They also have very cheap housing, they have seasonal employment, which attracts people, uh, benefits by the sea, sometimes they're called uh, some of these places. So they've become very quick and easy markets for county lines. How is this reported in the press? Well, rather uh, superlatively, of course. Uh, here's something here from uh, one of the tabloids talking about the spread of super gangs and county lines. 
And of course, if you want to win a competitive advantage in terms of your drug dealing, well, then you have to reduce your business costs. In the early days, younger people were put up in uh, bed and breakfasts and small hotels. This was too expensive and it also drew the attention of the hoteliers and the uh, authorities. So a change in tactics was adopted very quickly. And one of the changes was the emergence of cuckooing. Now, cuckooing is not new. It's been around for a very long time. And cuckooing really involves the taking over of uh, the, the flat or a bedsit or the sheltered housing of an individual who is usually very vulnerable. They may have um, physical or learning disabilities. They may be addicted to drugs or alcohol. Either way, they're going to be open to fake friendships. They're going to be open to guile. They're going to be open to uh, people pulling the wool over their eyes and then taking over their flats. Uh, I spent uh, two or three months in my most recent research uh, staying in and living in uh, and attending many of these um, apartments and these um, bedsits, trying to get interviews with people who had just injected themselves with heroin. Uh, to try and learn their stories about how and why they allowed people into their property. And there is quite often a very contested uh, issue around vulnerability. Uh, some of the cuckooed people have more agency. They use the uh, drug dealers as much as the drug dealers are using them. Many of them will be given what I call uh, a medicinal kosh, i.e. they are uh, applied with drugs in order to remain compliant and not to give any bother to the people who are dealing from their flat or their bedsit. The people who are dealing, of course, will use violence, coercion and intimidation. They may stay there anything from three days to three months, and it becomes uh, quite a, a desperate situation, I think, for everybody involved. They effectively take over the uh, property. One of the young women I interviewed who was um, a county lines uh, dealer, she would, her tactic in terms of cuckooing was to go to a cafe very early in the morning about 9 a.m. And she would sit all morning in the cafe and she would be able to identify who in this greasy spoon cafe was nursing the same cup of tea after three hours. And she immediately knew that they were vulnerable. They had no friends, no job, and nowhere to go. So she would strike up a conversation whereby she would talk about EastEnders or Coronation Street or something like that. And eventually she would be invited back to this person's uh, bedsit, and uh, during which time they would be watching the omnibus edition of Hollyoaks or EastEnders while she was texting her mates to come round. By six o'clock, there would be three or four young men there and the entire cuckooing process would be underway. Uh, they would be wrapping, dealing drugs um, from that apartment or from that bedsit uh, thereafter. So a very difficult situation and it can happen immediately. It can happen within uh, minutes, in actual fact. And of course, the competitive advantage for any drug dealer is to ensure you have a very tight control of your business. And this is done by a variety of sanctions. So violence, threats of violence, some of which are very inventive. Uh, tying young people to radiators, for example, seems to be a commonly held one down here in London. In East Anglia, it might be kidnapping people and forcing them into the boot of a car. We also have what's called remote mothering. So this is where young people have their phones monitored as a form of surveillance. They may be given GPS trackers to track their movements and they may have to report upline to the parent gang in London on a regular basis. So if they're staying in to deal from their flat and buying a pizza and maybe dealing through the letterbox, they will have to take a photograph of that push it on WhatsApp or Periscope and pass it upline to the parent gang who will monitor their movements in a very controlled way. One of the major issues here is around revenge and of course falling into debt and debt bondage. Another issue that might be used is intimidation and threats of violence and that of course can include group rape. Often the rapes are filmed and held as blackmail over the young dealers who are being uh, exploited and criminally exploited. If the boys who are dealing and wrapping the drugs get bored, they will call their parent gang in London or Birmingham and ask for some gift girls to be sent down. 
A gift girl is a young girl or two or three young girls who are collected from uh, a sheltered residence or a care home on a Friday night at 5 p.m. They're picked up by some young man in a flash car, told they're going to a party. They'll be plied with drink and drugs and they will be delivered to a cuckoo property where they'll be group raped and passed around and then driven back to the care home or the sheltered home uh, by nine o'clock on the Monday morning. And none of the adults are any of the wiser. And for young people, this entire process is normalised and unrecognised. And of course, there's a cycle of debt. So, you know, it starts with the parent gang there at 12 o'clock and the debt moves around to the dealers at three o'clock and then down to the runners at six o'clock and then over to the users at nine o'clock. But the profit uh, runs in the other direction. So inside that circle, you'll find the blue line. The blue profit line runs from the users to the runners, from the runners to the dealers and from the dealers to the parent gang. And the whole thing moves around uh, a formation of exploitation and intimidation. And of course, who's at the bottom of the food chain? Well, the users. Uh, and some of them are in a pretty uh, desperate uh, position from uh, what I was able to determine. And of course, if in doubt, keep the weapons handy. These are some of the weapons that have been found in cuckooed properties, for example. If in doubt, kill the competition. Take them out entirely. And this is part of the new evolution of street gangs. This idea that don't ask questions, stab first and then ask questions when somebody's lying prostrate on the ground, bleeding out. And this is a very recent development, this idea of kill the competition, perhaps only in the last two years or more. Of course, at the end of the line, the host towns where the county lines appear, there are all kinds of problems. And you'll find this whether up and down the country, whether it's in Morpeth, whether it's in Bridlington or Scarborough or Rill or Hunstanton or uh, Skegness or any of those places, you will find these impacts arriving with county lines. There will be increased acquisitive crime, increased violent crime. There is now a lot of violence against the users and runners. Sometimes the users have been inculcated to act as dealers themselves. We see debt bondage and fake robbery. We see young people buying the, the, uh, the burner phones and the deal lines. And some of these uh, county line phones can exchange hands for 20 to 30,000 pounds. A lot of money, but that will be recouped within a week uh, through county lines dealing. However, that phone already comes with violence attached to it, which has been inherited with this sale. And that might not be anything that you know about at all. So when you're buying a county line phone, you're buying a database of users who will then be your new market. But what you don't know is somebody has attached that market and that phone with, with um, a threat or they perceive their own money and that violence is now coming to you. Of course, again, the host towns will see increased money laundering, pop-up brothels, etc. If I'm starting a new um, county line in a new town, I'm going to use marketing techniques that will try and blow the competition out of the water. And I'll do that by ensuring that my product, my heroin or my crack cocaine, is a far higher quality than what other people are selling. Now, that creates problems of overdosing because a user who has switched to me, whereas previously they've been using other products, will now find that my product is far higher strength. And of course, that leads to a large number of people overdosing up and down the country. And that's a major issue for um, Scotland at the moment, with the highest number of overdoses in the UK and in fact in Europe. I found in my research that all of this upsets the equilibrium of drug users. Drug users are at the bottom of the food chain, but they are an oddly supportive community, hugely in debt, lots of poverty, engaged in um, low-level criminal activity, street begging, acquisitive crime, shoplifting to fund their habit. But now that County Lines has emerged, this whole uh, issue has uh, kind of been ruptured and upset, and it's creating problems and more violence. 
And uh, some of the violence you'll be seeing in your host towns is uh, arises from that. And then, of course, you've got local retaliation by local young gangs who are unhappy with the emergence and the arrival of uh, county lines. So what are the policies that sustain all these county line issues? Well, there are many of them. Looked after children's placements, unregulated care homes. I don't know how this persists, even after this issue has been identified by the Children's Commissioner four or five years ago. We have gang exit programs and family relocation programs where families and young individuals are uprooted and moved to a different part of the country. Well, that might have worked before social media, but now with social media, within a month, these kids are bored and they're back on social media saying, you know, well, hey, bro, I'm stuck here in Great Yarmouth and uh, nobody's really dealing, so I'm going to set it up. So why don't you send the gear to me and I'll start running for you because there's no competition here. And those kind of things lead to a proliferation of street gangs and a proliferation of county line dealing. We also have social housing relocation and endless forms of social exclusion and PRUs. And of course, as I mentioned, this has a rippling out effect. So on the right hand side, the photograph images, you will see what happens in your town when one county line emerges. The middle photograph, you have two or three county lines coming in, maybe more. And the bottom photograph is what's going to happen in your town when you have multiple lines coming in. So a very highly agitated, very turbulent local presentation and local landscape. I call this the gang ripple effect. There is seeding, there is franchising of county lines, and there is the propagation of street gangs. And the modus operandi, the logic and the rules of street gang, gangs, that's now being picked up and adhered to by much smaller towns in the UK, towns like Coventry and Preston and Northampton and Nottingham, places that were never traditionally touched by what we might call urban street gangs. All of this leads to increased local violence. Then you add into this the impact of social media. And we all know what this can do. And young people are very free and easy with their views and opinions on social media. Multiple opinions. But those opinions can never be dialed back down. So it creates what I call a ratchet effect. It cannot be dialed down. And whatever you put on social media lives for infinity and beyond. And it makes the issue that's appeared hugely uh, emotionally proximal to the young person. So they're no longer hearing about a violent event in school assembly at nine o'clock on Monday. They are now watching it live streamed to their phone as they're sitting in their classroom or they're on the bus and they will run off the bus and they will pile up and they will get involved. So you have uh, an enormous um, adjutant here in terms of uh, social media. It's an accelerant to absolutely everything that is taking place. And it also increases issues such as grooming and recruitment, and it widens what I call the orbit of the street gang. And it touches and impacts upon young people who have never before been involved with gangs. It used to be to be involved with the street gang, you would have to live on the estate or nearby or go to the same school. Not anymore. You can live in North London and affiliate to a gang in South London. You can live in Coventry and affiliate to a gang in North Manchester. That's the situation now with uh, social media. Information, of course, equals survival. The more information you have, the better informed you are. The more risk assessment you can make and the greater risk mitigation you can make as a young, people, young person. You also need information to build your brand and your business or your county line. This, however, leads to a massive amount of information. Hundreds and hundreds of texts and WhatsApp messages every day for a young person, which leads to what I call information overload. Now, we all know what it's like to have 100 or 200 emails a day. Well, they are way in excess of this. And young people cannot uh, plan, 
They cannot foresee. They cannot read that into the future. They cannot risk assess uh, or mitigate their risk. They are they're in a maelstrom of information about who is uh, who's after them, who's threatening them, who's sweeping with who, who's dropped who and is now coming after you, who's coming out of prison, who's going into prison, who's been arrested, who's just come out of the nick. All of those issues, an absolute maelstrom of information. That means they can't tell the difference between what is fake and what is real. Now, of course, you could argue that some people in the White House had that problem. But for young people, that is a very, very serious issue. And this idea of what is fake and what is real now underpins their entire being. And to do that, they have to have um, authenticity. So there is now a crisis of authenticity for young people. They have to keep it real. And there are only two ways to keep it real. One is drill music and the other is running a county line. And if you're involved in either, then you're an authentic G, an authentic gangster or an authentic street gang member. If you're not involved in county lines or drill music, then you're old, you're passe, you're past it. And that's one of the issues that I'm finding in my current research is that the olders and the elders of street gangs who may only be 25 have not got involved in drill music and have not got involved in county lines. So the younger people are pushing them out of the way and being much more um, strident and evocative. What does this do for young people? It creates a landscape of risk. That landscape is not just a physical landscape. It's an online landscape and it's a mental landscape and it's one that's dominated by fear. And this landscape, they tell me, is ungoverned, it's unpoliced, and it's unsafe. And it's their world. And it's not a world where adults go or know anything about. It's a world that is reachable 24 hours a day with no off switch at all. So they're on their own. And they feel fearful, paranoid, and traumatized by all of this. And of course, this generates enormous problems around mental health, uh, including uh, self-medication through the smoking of high-strength skunk, which of course makes people paranoid and then doubles down on the uh, trauma and the fear and the paranoia. Uh, sorry, excuse me. So how do we get ahead of this? Well, this is a little bit bleak. Um, I don't believe we really have the policing or partnership structures to address this at the moment. I refer to this as a, what I would call a 21st century problem. But we've got 20th century structures to deal with this. We've got town hall structures that were established in the 19th century. And I don't think we are agile enough. I don't believe we are front footed enough to address these issues. Uh, because these town hall partnership silos are operationally slow, they are unresponsive, unmodernized, they're unadjusted, technologically ill-equipped. We have systems that don't talk to each other, even within the uh, police service and the police forces. And uh, many of these um, mechanisms are simply inefficient and unsuitable for what we face now in the 21st century. We need to focus much more on people, uh, community engagement, on effective strategies, on uh, increasing our ability to uh, analyze. Our analytical capability just seems to have fallen through the floor as far as I can determine, and it's diminished enormously. We've lost our ability to do effective partnership working. Uh, many times I interview people who just don't really get it or fully understand it. And the policies that we have are inappropriate and insufficient. So we also have a lack of capable guardians in public spaces and in youth spaces. We need to invest in services, not cut them. We need to focus on contextual safeguarding in schools. Now that's developing. Uh, but it's not wide enough and it's not widely understood enough. We need to look at safeguarding, not just uh, for the young person at home, but in school, on the routes to school, uh, online, and of course, on transport. 
because that's where young people hang out. We need to tackle drug demand. The facilities we have around substance misuse are woefully inadequate. Most of them were set up in the 1980s and they were suitable for the 1980s. But no heroin addict that I interviewed is going to waste their time walking three miles across town on a wet Wednesday to visit, you know, have a lecture on uh, substance misuse in a drafty hall when their dealer is 10 meters from their front door. Um, so it's just not going to happen. We need to get these services out peripatetically to where people are on their estates. If the dealers can push drugs through the doors, we need to have services that are based locally on their estates. We need to capacity build young people at school. We need to give young people the language and the resilience to address these issues when they arise and are presented to them. Young people don't have the capacity or the vocabulary to say to somebody, no, I don't want to get involved in your county line business. Thank you very much. We need to peer support them and provide them with the ability and the resilience to do that. We had in the United Kingdom a really impressive community safety uh, profession. It's withered away right now to the point where it's kind of dying on the vine. And I'm endlessly visiting areas where the community safety department has diminished to one man and his dog, and it's not good enough. Now at a time of uh, decreased resources and policing resources, partnership is the only way forward with this. So we need to be revitalizing our community safety agenda in order to take this forward and to, to address and to deal with these issues immediately and in the long term. We also need to have a national conversation with young people. We need to be listening to them and hearing what they've got to say. And that means engaging them where they are, in their schools, in barbershops, for example. I like the idea of speaking to young people in barbershops. Uh, you know, we need to be working with them wherever they are. And we need to be finding solutions with young people, not solutions to young people. And we need to mobilize the community around this. So often I go into various parts of the country and the uh, chief exec or the elected leaders have said, oh, no gang problems here. Uh, and of course there are. And this creates tensions within the partnership. And, uh, you know, the local people feel as if they've been abandoned and they're not being listened to. Well, none of that helps. We need to mobilize the local communities and activate their ability to volunteer. And by doing that, we will release an energy uh, throughout uh, these local communities that will help turn the tide around some of this. If you want to read more about any of this, I thoroughly recommend my book, County Lines, and my other book called Street Casino, available in all good bookshops for a reasonable price. And... Uh, if you have any issues you want to get in contact with me about, I'm the director of the National Centre for Gang Research at the University of West London. By all means, please uh, make contact and I'll be happy to come out and visit you, uh, undertake um, consultation or write a report or uh, give you my uh, well-earned, hard-earned advice. I hope you find that interesting and uh, I'll pass back now to Alex for uh, Q&A. Thanks ever so much for that, Simon. Um, really interesting. And I've got um, so many questions here and coming in, uh, but I really appreciate your time. Um, so perhaps a couple of procedural questions. I got uh, I made a few errors at the beginning. One, obviously, by saying you're from the University of the West of England. Nothing wrong with that university at all, but you're from the University of West of London. And I also said <clears throat> this is an example of ethnographic research, and I don't think that's particularly true to the point. Uh, and would you would you be able for us, this is after all the Society of Evidence Based Policing, to talk about your methods and how you uh, came to the conclusions that you have insightfully brought us this morning? That, that's the first question, then a few more to follow. 
Yes, thanks, Alex. Okay, so in terms of research methodology, it's mixed methods. Uh, I use um, uh, some quantitative methods. I largely use qualitative methods where I'll do extended one-to-one -one interviews. I may run focus groups. My interviews, for example, for county lines stretch to about 130 people. Uh, I would do interviews with um, uh, council officers, substance misuse officers, elected members, uh, housing officers, youth workers, yacht workers, uh, police officers. I did 20 hours of ride-alongs with um, frontline police officers, which I found absolutely fascinating and a real insight into how things work. Uh, I would then sit for hours on end uh, in um, trap houses and um, uh, crack houses and uh, cuckoo properties. I would interview young people who were running drugs, dealing drugs. I would interview the parent gang uh, back in London, for example. These are the senior level people who are making, you know, up to half a million pounds a year and employing 20 or 30 people. Uh, and I would also uh, interview um, the users extensively. So uh, a very wide variety of different people. I would analyze that, uh, transcribe all the interviews, analyze that thematically, um, you know, undertake snowball sampling, purposive sampling, um, possibly use in vivo if, if I had that opportunity. And, um, you know, elements of participant observation. So many times I would visit uh, areas and I would uh, either live there or stay there for up to two months at a time um, on, you know, living, moving around the estate, making observations of how deals and transactions were being done. Uh, so a variety of different things. And I, I largely get away with it because, um, you know, um, I guess a white middle class man and nobody thinks I'm, I know anything about it or can recognize it. And if I'm challenged, I'm usually challenged for being a Fed. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating um, opportunity for me and I really enjoy it. Thanks ever so much. Perhaps I can ask um, uh, for some comments around the observations you made uh, about what are we going to do about it. <clears throat> uh, naturally, I'm a police officer. I'm interested in what we can do to get violence down. So two questions uh, sort of cobbled together. The first one is the new Crime Sentencing and Courts Act is bringing in what they call a serious violence duty to uh, public authorities, including to Arm for Education and including the NHS, to work together to share data to deal with violence. So very much, hopefully, driving the partnership approach you spoke of. And from that, I'm, I think about the evidence that is quite persuasive from the states in relation to pulling levers. So it's the David Kennedy's sort of work, which we seem to have failed to make work here in the UK. Um, uh, just uh, interested in your comment on, you said partnership is, you know, the way forward, don't do to, to with. That, that very much reflects David Kennedy's approach. Um, why haven't we seen it be effective over here and what's your view of the serious violence duty that is being proposed in in the bill okay i'll take the duty first that's proposed in the bill um I, i'm a little bit skeptical of this i i find it is a bit of a fix to be honest because uh, knowing the legislation as i do that duty already exists in the crime and disorder act from 1998 so when i was recently um in a policy briefing in number 10 i raised this issue and i said i asked them pointedly why do you have this duty now appearing in this forthcoming bill? Uh, because you have it already in existence. There is a duty, uh, uh, effectively, under the um, community safety agenda and partnership arrangements to effectively address those issues. And uh, they said, yes, we put this into the bill without realizing it was already effectively in legislation and we've just kept it in and hope that nobody notices. So that's an almost verbatim quotation from my conversation in the policy meetings at number 10. In terms of... Um, Can I just, so let me just uh, respond to that one. I'll respond to that one. Uh, so uh, from my, you're Go on ahead. CDRP. Um, CDRP doesn't explicitly require... Uh, a focus on violence, although it's, you know, it's all crime. So that that is welcoming from my violence point of view. And also, I think some of the other statutory partners are not in a community safety partnership, which would be under this act. So uh, health and education in particular. So I do sense there's some difference there. 
being a completely Alex, apolitical, impartial police officer. Completely, completely. Now, I would argue, as somebody who's had a career in community safety uh, for almost 30 years, including being a community safety inspector for the Audit Commission and seven years at the Home Office uh, and uh, Crime Reduction Director at Wambeth Council and Community Safety Manager in Hackney and Islington, I would argue that if community safety partnerships were working effectively, health and education would be in there. They are provided for as um, uh, uh, consultees and um, members within the Act itself, which I know intimately well. And and uh, those provisions are there. The fact, what's happened to community safety over the past um, 10 years, I think, since austerity, is that the coalition government and the Tory government has basically allowed it to wither away in the vine. And where community safety is still highly effective tends to be in metropolitan areas or uh, labour voting boroughs. Um, not trying to get too political about it, but those are areas of multiple deprivation and poverty where perhaps um, crime is higher and community safety uh, arrangements have been um, cogently adhered to in a more productive way. So, you know, um, the, the fact that uh, the, the new bill or act is going to bring this in, Alex, I'm in agreement with you to some extent. If it helps, it helps. And I'm grateful for that. So anything that can help will be uh, appreciated. Um, my point around it already being in existence is perhaps a little bit pedantic, uh, and I, I, I accept to be a pedant in that regard. In switching on now to David uh, Kennedy, I know David, uh, I've been over to uh, Chicago and Philadelphia and New York, I've seen the work that's done over there. And of course, his um, position on this is to treat um, crime as a, a kind of health issue and to see it almost as a kind of contagion of violence. I do understand that. I, I think it's a metaphor that can be stretched a little too far. Um, and I think perhaps my um, re-theorizing this around the concept of street capital and the concept of uh, a, a kind of internalized economy that is driving this where people want to achieve status and reputation. For me, I feel I've given an alternative theoretical position and perspective. The introduction of the violence reduction units in the UK um, has had a mixed effect thus far. Um, I value and I'm grateful for the focus that it's brought on these issues because I think that focus was lacking. So in that regard, it's brought a focus. But uh, unfortunately, when all of this was introduced three or four years ago now, the, uh, the national government was looking for very much for a quick fix. And uh, I, I think the uh, approach that David Kennedy has brought uh, around health Whilst the message is fine, the actual introduction of it has been something of a quick fix. And of course, you'll, you'll know yourself that um, everybody rushed up to Glasgow to have sight of the uh, violence reduction unit in Glasgow, which has had a great deal of success. Now, the violence reduction unit in Glasgow has been uh, effectively copied or cut and pasted into a number of um, English and Welsh uh, cities. And I don't think it's going to work because the situation that presents down here is 100% different from the situation in Glasgow. The situation in Glasgow that the Violence Reduction Unit dealt with is not really what we would call, I think, Alex, urban street gangs. What it is, is um, a mixture of recreational violence with young people who have got involved in inherited generational violence that has been ongoing for the past 50, 60, 70 years. I've lived and worked in Glasgow. I know the gangs extremely well. I, I use gangs as a kind of common terminology there. And um, some of them have been around since the 1940s and the 1950s. And you have grandparents and fathers pushing their children into group violence and recreational violence. And these are young boys who perhaps live on the 15th floor of a tower block who will get um, mega drunk on 
super strength Lago, uh, run down the flight of stairs and fight with the gang in the next tower block. So also they're not involved in selling uh, and dealing uh, heroin and crack cocaine in the way that young people are involved in urban street gangs down here in London. So that mechanism is different. The uh, ethnicity of the people involved in Glasgow is also very different. And uh, Glasgow is a unitary authority that if that's effectively the size of two London boroughs, you know, it's only 600,000 people. Uh, and that equates to two London boroughs. So in London, we have an enormous political patchwork quilt where, you know, agreeing these issues is very challenging. Glasgow uh, and the Scottish government uh, are, are also very, um, and nascent, they're very close with each other. It's a very flat structure. So there was very um, quick agreement from the Scottish government that this targeted approach would work. And the final issue around the violence reduction unit in Glasgow is that at the same time and in parallel with the work they were doing, there were significant legal changes around the availability of alcohol. And what's never been properly evaluated and factored into the equation are these um, societal changes and legislative changes that took place at the same time. So whilst I applaud Glasgow for the work that they do, and I know the Violence Reduction Unit staff extremely well, um, there is uh, there's a slight grandstanding and overplaying of their position, if you were to ask my honest opinion. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Simon Harding. It's been really interesting, and I hope a lot of people watch this over the in the coming months and pull out the insights from it. Can I just remind everyone uh, online that uh, you can join the Society of Evidence-Based Policing in about 10 seconds online. When you do, you'll get a link to the next presentation and for future presentations and future conferences. Next time, it's a data science, a skill that all police officers need to understand from Andreas Varostis. Thanks very much, uh, Professor Simon Harding, for your time. Uh, I will speak to you later. Have a great day. Thank you, Arch. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.